Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is the 128th Psalm. It's found on page 518 of your Pew Bibles. Again, that's Psalm 128. Please stand for the reading of God's Word if you are able. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, you are bountiful with us. Your blessings are new every morning. You give blessing on blessing. You make us happy. You make us happy. You give freely to your children. There's some of us in the room that would like squirm at just even like that mention, but it is clear in scripture, all throughout scripture, that you give blessing on blessing on blessing to your children. You give freely because you are gracious you are merciful, you are glorious, you are powerful, you are mighty, you are sovereign and gloriously beautiful, and we stand in awe of you, and we worship you, and we humbly come to you, and we fear you, this song says. We fear you. God, would you help us see the magnificence of who you are and your character this morning? Would we receive, would we be like freed by faith, free from like horizontal fear and actually like emboldened by the fear of the Lord to come to you, to glory in you and to receive from you? God, would you do that through your word this morning? I pray and amen. Okay, so, hey, fear is a strong emotion. It may be like one of the strongest emotions we have, and it often dominates our lives, right? Like we have this complicated relationship with fear. Um, Am I the only one who loves scary movies, right? I love scary movies, but I hate the feeling of my stomach turning in knots and anxiety, Like when I'm fearful of things not turning out the way that I want them. I hate stewing on things and worrying about things that could possibly go wrong. And if you've been paying attention at all over these last 20 years, there's been like this growing culture of fear in the world, right? Like you've noticed this rising anxiety within the news we consume, the fretting about global terrorism, extreme weather, pandemics, political turmoil. Politicians know that fear drives votes. Our digitized world information is coming at us faster than ever before about things on the other side of the world, you know, within seconds that we can't even do anything about. And we worry about our health, what to do, what not to do. They all seem contradictory or updated. We're worried about minuscule, like the minuscule chance that your children are going to be abducted, right? Giving rise to helicopter parents, which down the road then gives rise to colleges, creating safe spaces and children who are considered too fragile for disagreements. Like all of these things we see in our world. And right there, there's a paradox. There's a paradox here. While we live in the most fearful society, we also currently live in the safest one. Like this safest and easiest time has like never existed before in human history like it does now. Seatbelts, airbags, aspirin, antibiotics, more money, more security. So why isn't anyone happy? Right? Like we're safer than any other time in history. And we like, and and I think like we've seen recently that most of society is more panicky and anxious and unsatisfied. How is that even possible? 
You might say that prosperity breeds fear and anxiety, right? Like when people have a lot, they fear losing a lot. And that makes sense. There's something to that. But I think it goes deeper. You could say, well, we've lost our moral compass. Like we've lost something that grounds us, which affects the way that we deal with fear. Another way to say that would be every fork in the road of your life presents the fear of going down the wrong road. Like, do you ever feel that? Like every choice you make, you worry about, man, is this the right career? Is this the person I should marry? How to raise my children? Should you do this? Should you do that? Like, what is it going to, like, what's going to be the best road for me in my life? Is this going to turn out okay? What will guide your decision-making process in your life? How will you decide your path? What will be your compass, right? And that gets us much closer to the problem, but we're still not quite deep enough. And this psalm begins with the declaration of blessing. It says, you are blessed. You can experience real happiness, real joy in your life. When? When what? Verse one. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You see, if you want true happiness, if you want sustained joy, if you want a path that will actually make you right with God, it's not found in like bushwhacking your own path. The discontentment within us, your anxiety that you feel, the moral confusion that we see in our society is the consequence of a prior loss, the fear of God. Twice this passage tells us to fear. Like, did that stick out to you when we read it? Twice this passage tells you that you should be fearful in fact, it frames as a, good, as a good thing in our life. Now, I know some of you might be pulling up that scripture that Apostle Paul says. He says that there's no fear in love. In fact, perfect love casts out fear. So what's going on here? I want us to talk about the fear of God and how it actually produces blessings from God. That's what I want to walk us through this morning. We'll do that in three movements. I want to look at the relationship between true happiness and the fear of the Lord. Then we'll look at how the fear of the Lord sets us on the right path for all of our life. And then we'll finish, which is actually the bulk of the psalm. Everything after verse one is these blessings of God for those who fear the Lord as they're pictured in work, wife, and children. Okay, so that's where we're going. First, we're going to look at the relationship between true happiness in the fear of the Lord, how that affects our lives, and then the pictures of these blessings. So let's begin with the happiness that's found in the fear of the Lord. How can fearing God produce blessings in your life? The psalmist is telling us that the place to experience true happiness, in fact, the home address of true joy, the place where you find ultimate satisfaction is the fear of the Lord. Happiness is found in the fear of the Lord. Joy in your life is found in the fear of the Lord. And this is a truth that we see all through scripture, but it's not uncommon for people to like get hung up on the phraseology here, right? They get hung up on this word fear because we regularly only think of fear like as just one thing. But fear can mean different things, right? Like there's natural fear, fear that you have, right? Like if you're going on a hike and you see a snake, you'll, like you can't even control it. You'll feel fear, like this fight or flight kind of reaction. That's good. We don't want to lose that, right? That's good. We also have sinful fear though. This is caused by unbelief and mistrusting God. This is the sort of fear Adam had when he sinned and he tried to hide from God, right? His reaction in that moment shows us the essential nature of this sinful fear. Sinful fear drives you away from God. In our sin, this fear doesn't trust God. It doesn't wanna be near God. It, it actually has fear that causes us to remain a rebel in our heart toward God because this fear is a fear of being exposed as the sinner that we are, so this fear runs away from the presence of God. It opposes the love of God, and so it will have no blessing from God. All of us, apart from God's grace, are trapped by this kind of sinful fear. And a Puritan writing on fear says, if men would dig to the root of their fears, they would certainly find unbelief there. He quotes Jesus in Matthew 8, 26 saying, why are ye afraid, one of little faith? The less faith, still the more fear. Fear, he says, is generated by unbelief. And unbelief 
strengthened by fear. And therefore, all the skill in the world can never cure us of the disease of fear till God first cure us of our unbelief. Christ therefore took the right method to rid his disciples of fear by rebuking their unbelief. Here's what he's saying. Sinful fear grows in the soil of your unbelief. If you're feeling anxious about something this morning, it's because somewhere deep inside your soul, you're struggling with unbelief toward God. Fear, though, withers when it comes in contact with faith in God. And faith is fertilized by what? The fear of God. The fear of God. The fear of God produces faith with less and less unbelief and more and more faith. Our fear of man, our fear of circumstances, our fear of like the unknown begins to dissipate. The fear of the Lord is the right kind of fear. And we're not talking about a cowering fear here. We're not talking, um, this isn't a fear of punishment. This isn't a fear that crawls. The scriptures describe this kind of fear as a grace and as a gift from God. Hebrews 12, 28 says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now, other translations translate this word awe here as godly fear. Godly fear. This is experiencing the love of God and responding inwardly with this awe towards him to worship God, to actually be drawn toward him. Let me say it this way. If I said, I love and have real affection for my truck, and I do, I love and have real affection for my wife. I love and have real affection for my God. Each statement on their own, totally fine. Said together should make you wince a little bit, right? Right? Like it, and, and that's right, right? Because these are three different loves for three different kinds of objects. Because these objects are different, right? So it should affect my love different. The living God is entirely different than everything else. The living God is infinitely perfect and quintessentially, overwhelmingly beautiful. He is beautiful in every way, perfect. His righteousness, his graciousness, his majesty, his mercy, his all, it is an attraction to the soul of man. He attracts us. Uh, to draw toward him in adoration for his majesty and power and glory because he's our creator. He's our creator and savior. He's your only hope and sustainer. He's the only reason we draw breath. We're attracted to him. But this isn't like a casual or breezy thing that we do. Like this isn't a small thing. We're loving him very well, like we're not loving him very well if we're not also simultaneously taking a couple steps back. If we're also not simultaneously trembling before him because after all, he is the sovereign judge over all. He is the Lord. He is uh, uh, glorious and demands our worship and our obedience. He is powerful. And Philippians says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Keep in mind, this is Paul's happiest letter. Paul's telling us rejoice always. Rejoice with fear and trembling. Be happy with fear and trembling to the Lord, which should change the way we live. That's our second point. The fear of the Lord is expressed in how we live. And Spurgeon says, it is not because we are afraid of him, but because we delight in him that we fear before him. Thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, says Isaiah 65. And so it comes to pass with us, the more we fear the Lord, the more we love him until this becomes to us the true fear of God, to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. You see what Spurgeon knew is that the fear of the Lord actually produces a joy that changes the way we live our lives. It looks like something. The fear of the Lord is not just like a set of beliefs that you can tick off. Real faith, 
believes them enough to actually let them change the way that you're walking your life. It, it goes all the way down, right? Blessed is everyone who walks in his ways, verse one says. My family's reading through the Pilgrim's Progress right now. Um, I just bought uh, a couple versions of the book that we're reading through with our kids. It's called The Little Pilgrim's Progress. It is unbelievable. But um, I, it's one of my favorite books. It's actually Spurgeon. He says it's the second best book in the world behind the Bible, and he read it every year of his life. It's a powerful story. It's a powerful uh, um, allegory of the Christian life. And it tells this story of Christian how he is justified and sanctified, leaving the city of destruction and walking the king's pathway to the city, like the celestial city. And he comes up against his own failures, his own struggles, different kinds of opposition and colorful characters. Well, I was reading a couple of weeks ago with our girls as Christian came to the hill of difficulty. And he's traveling with these two guys who seem to try to cut different paths, to make shortcuts in the path. And formalist and hypocrisy are at his side. And formalist looks at the hill of difficulty and says, there's no way I'm making it up the hill. And he looks to the left and he sees the path to danger. And it seems wide, it seems smooth. And he, seen, he, he says to himself, surely this is going to reconnect with the king's path. I'm taking this road. The other guy, hypocrisy, looks to the right and says, there's no way I'm making up this hill. I'm going down the path of destruction. And certainly this will work out for me in the end. We learned that he actually meets his demise. Christian faces all these kinds of challenges, these ambiguities in the world. He makes tons of mistakes, even struggles with his own will. He isn't perfect or without fault, but that isn't even the point of this. The point is the way is plain. It's straight. Yes, it's narrow. You can't veer to the left and to the right. And if you're carrying anything that doesn't fit in the way, you have to abandon it on the side of the road. But it is clear. Everyone knows the way. But his ways only make sense for people who want the full life. There's always people trying to take other paths, other roads, attempting to create their own system of values and truth from scratch. And they wonder why things never actually work out for them in the end. H.H. Farmer said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. Taking that idea, another pastor explained it this way. If I want to travel north and all the roads are cut to the east, of course I shall complain of the roads. I shall find nothing but obstacles. I shall have to surmount walls and cross rivers and go round about. And after all, all of this fail of my end, this is the road traveled by you when your aim is to achieve some meaning in life, pursuing your right to happiness, but refusing to take the clear, well-traveled, but narrow road that actually leads you there. It's like you're trying to get all the benefits of Mount Zion, but choosing to ignore the signs and compass readings and stubbornly avoid the trails as you bushwhack your way through the wilderness. Do you not see that they necessarily must meet the thwartings, the crossings, the disappointments and failure? They go mile after mile watching for their destination, but never sighting it. And then they accuse religion of interfering with what they consider their innocent pleasures and wishes, but religion is only an inconvenience, only an inconvenience to those who are traveling against the grace of creation at cross purposes with a way that leads to redemption. You see, we can be tempted to think that our way is best. We, we want to do what we want to do and we think we know the best way to get pleasure out of this life. And we can be tempted into thinking that our own path is where the action is. It's just another version of the lie that is echoed in the Garden of Eden, right? In fact, the whole rest of this psalm is the psalmist taking us back to the three blessings originally given to Adam in the garden and showing that when we rightly fear God and walk in his ways, he is gracious and kind to redeem these blessings. And he dispenses them on those who walk his narrow pathway, those who would fear him. And then they get to receive these blessings as he originally designed so now let's go to our third point, these three blessings of work, wife, and children. So 
In Genesis, Adam is commissioned to rule the earth and work the land. Adam is called to do real meaningful work there. Adam is presented with his wife, Eve. God gives her in marriage to Adam. And Adam and Eve are commanded to be fruitful and multiply with children. These wonderful blessings given to Adam and Eve in the garden. And the psalm takes us back to the garden. Here they are living according to God's original design as he would have them live. But there's a battle in chapter 3 of Genesis. A battle to rightly understand the joy of the fear of the Lord. And what did the serpent say to them? You don't have to fear. You don't need to fear God. You can be like God. You don't need to fear him. You can be like him. You can make your own happiness by carving out your own path to fulfillment and happiness and blessedness. You can, you can bushwhack your own path towards that. What was the lie? What was the lie? That for them to be happy, they needed to stop being holy. Disobey God. You'll really be free and happy when you get to call the shots on your own life, right? Following your own heart, following your own North Star. Like, where have we heard that before? It's everywhere. You hear it every day. It's the lie from Satan in the garden. It's the lie within our world that we hear every day of our lives. Our world wants to take God's good, like uh, original gifts that he's given us, these created blessings for us, work and marriage and children, and they want to make them abnormal. They want to twist them. They want to warp them. The world wants to take these things that God has originally designed and distort them under the lie that some other version of that gift will actually make you more happy. What is the psalmist doing here? He's challenging that lie. He's confronting that lie. He's actually challenging Satan. He's challenging our world. He's challenging our own flesh that would actually lie to ourselves. And he's saying, no, you're absolutely wrong. The place of true joy and happiness and blessedness is found in the way that God intended for every one of his children to enjoy it. And the psalmist gives us these three pictures of those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways that he will work a restoration in their lives. He will actually redeem these original blessings and restore them, these blessings of work and wife and children. We're just gonna walk through each of these pictures for the rest of our time. So let's begin with work. Our passage says that when you fear God and walk in his ways, we again have meaningful work in our lives. Adam and Eve were created and placed in the garden, but the garden, like I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the garden had untapped potential, right? It's interesting that God creates a world and then fills it with potential. All this potential energy, right? All these things that man has done was untapped potential. So he calls Adam and Eve to work, to actually subdue it and to expand it to the rest of the world to work for his glory. Work wasn't a drag for them. I was at the checkout aisle a couple of days ago and the person checking me out and the bagger were complaining about their job in front of me, um, which was a little weird. And then the person standing behind me in the line goes, oh yeah, I hate my job too. Everybody was complaining about their job and I'm just sitting there listening and thinking, I'm gonna be preaching about work this Sunday. <laughs> hey, for them, work wasn't a drag. It wasn't, it wasn't something that they had to do. It wasn't a necessary evil. It was meaningful, purposeful. It was producing because it was partnering with God to expand his glory. Good work is something that existed before the fall. And I've got news for you. It's going to exist long after Jesus comes back. Like work will exist forever for the glory of God. So we ought to get this thing straight, right? Like our world wants to take the blessing of working unto the eyes of the Lord and for his purposes, and it wants to bend it and turn it in on ourselves. You've heard it said, find a job that's fulfilling and you never work a day in your life, right? That may not be horrible advice straight out, but it does communicate something. It does say something that's not really helpful. It does imply the fact or the idea that the primary goal of work is simply to make you happy. 
It isn't about answering his call or being faithful to his call. It's about finding a job that makes me come alive, that aligns perfectly with all my gifts and wiring and callings and desires and all of these sorts of things. And if I don't find this perfect job that lands all of my desires and hopes and dreams, then I keep searching. I punt things. I don't actually work the soil where God has placed me. It has to align with my particular passions. We treat our choice of vocation as the thing that will fulfill us and make us happy. Obviously, nothing's wrong with finding a job that aligns with your gifts and your passions and desires, but there is a difference between godly work that tills the ground where God has placed you, where we're more concerned with faithfulness before his eyes than building our own kingdom, building our own identity, trying to build something that gets us more or extends our own like joy and self-centered work that's never satisfied. Never satisfied with where you are. It's always trying to build your own kingdom. It's always trying to like buy the bigger and better thing. It's trying to pay for experiences so you can have more joy in your life. It makes your life more cushy to climb the ladder, to be the king of the mountain, to make a name for yourself. And all of this is vanity. Like all of this is pointless. All of this, and you know this because you've done this, I've done this, we've all done this, we've bought into the lie that if I work harder, accumulate these things, I'll actually have something meaningful, but a day later, a week later, it's toil. It, it doesn't get you what you want it, right? But when we walk in the ways of the Lord, verse two, there's a blessing here, it's a promise. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. The Lord will be gracious to you and begin little by little reversing the curse in the way that you see your work. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna lose your job or that you're gonna have the most amazing job, but it will realign the work that you do and rightly orient it to God's purposes. Whether you're hanging sheetrock, making tables, uh, being a missionary, whatever you do, he rightly orders that in your life to make you a steward, right? A steward that doesn't use your job for your purposes, but stewards it for the benefit, uh, for the God's glory and for the benefit of other people. You won't despise it anymore. A godly person pursues the heart of God and enjoys the fruit of the work of his hands as a gift from God. That's an amazing blessing. The second blessing is your wife. In fact, in the next two pictures, we see the psalmist emphasize uh, what grows in the home and what's scattered around the table of a man who fears God. Let me read verse three. Verse three, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. That's just such a beautiful statement. Let's look at the wife. This is a picture of her attractiveness to her husband. It's this beautiful picture. It's him taking delight in her. It's him standing by her side. It's seeing her grow and flourish and how God had called her. And this takes us back again to the garden. God creates Adam first, and then he begins to bring Adam all the animals of the earth, right? That's that story where he's bringing all of these animals, and Adam's naming all of these animals, and God says, hey, did you notice, Adam? None of them are like you. Like, there's no match for you. There's no partner for you. And then he says, for the first time in human history, this is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. Now, Think about this for a second. Here's Adam standing before his creator, God, and God says, it's not good for you to be alone. And so what does God bring Adam? He brings Adam, the first woman, Eve, and he says, here, this is what you need. This is what you need. Wives, wives in the room, like you should take that in. Like I can't overemphasize this, Wives, take this in for a moment. The significance of that statement that God says, Adam, you've got your creator, you've got your sustainer for life in me, but it's not good that you're alone. You need something else. You need your wife beside you. 
And the picture in this Psalm is that the blessing and the beauty of having a godly wife like just changes your house. It changes your dinner table. It changes, uh, it, it changes it, it, it's a blessing from God because this man who fears God walks with him. So therefore his wife flourishes like a fruitful vine in their home. His pursuit of the Lord catch this, his pursuit of the Lord, his devotion to the things of God actually create a context, an environment in their home where she's nourished and flourished and thrives and has children, which takes us to the next picture, children. His fear of the Lord is also creating a context where children can flourish, right? Not just in the home, but around this table, you see olive shoots shooting up, and this picture of olive shoots is pretty common in the Old Testament. We could go through a number of passages, but we don't have time. This Old Testament picture simply means that God is going to give and multiply life and flourishing when we don't deserve it. That's the point of that. Hey, you don't deserve the life I'm gonna give to you in your home, but I'm gonna bless you with it anyway. That's the picture here. We should receive God's blessing and we should receive these children with joy. And God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to have children who are image bearers of God and live for him. Now, right here, um, I wanna go to town on talking about the beauty and the, like, the gift of children. But next week, Ron's preaching 127 and I'm gonna leave all of that for him. He's gonna go to town next week on that. I assume we haven't talked about his sermon, but it's all over his sermon. So we're gonna leave that for him. What I wanna do is um, do something a little different. But before I go there, I do wanna say something here that I think needs to be said. The psalmist is outlining that God is gracious and merciful and is right now renewing his original blessings and gifts to his children. And I wanna say, hey, this, these pictures of God's blessing are good news for all of us in the room. These blessings are good news. It doesn't matter your station in life, your season in life. These are beautiful blessings for every one of us in the room. Even if you're not experiencing some of these blessings or may never experience these blessings in your life, this is how it once was before the fall and this is how it will be. These are the blessings of God. And we recognize in all of these things, in work, in marriage, and in children, there are griefs in this world that certainly sit here in this room right now. There are griefs that we go through. There are struggles, there are blessings, and there are griefs that we navigate. And God's blessings do not work like a vending machine. Like God deals with each one of us personally. He deals with us in a personal, uh, intimate way. And, and it's not a one-to-one. You do this, God gets you this. That's not what's being communicated here. And here's what we need to remember. All of God's children will take part in the banquet feast of the lamb when Jesus returns. All of God's people, all of God's children will receive all of his blessings when Christ returns. But there are, but there are times when faithful, God-fearing Christians miss out on the hors d'oeuvres. In this life, these are these extra hors d'oeuvres and blessings that God gives his children. And not all of us get all of them all the time, but have faith, he will bestow. He, you are welcomed. You will take part fully in the banquet feast of the lamb. Every believer will take part of this banquet feast, even if you miss out on some of the hors d'oeuvres now. And in the midst of that, our world wants to take these things Our world does not want us to fear God and it hates the blessings of God. And godly marriage and growing a family is something that our world wants to see as abnormal. And the world wants to take these normal created blessings and they want to distort them, right? They want to take these pictures of what it means to fear God and trust him and submit your life to him and walk in his pathway. And they want to say, there's some other way you can get that. They want to distort it. When my dad was young, he may have known a couple of divorced families, When I was young, I knew more. Today, you would be hard pressed to find one person who doesn't have a personal experience in their extended family of divorce, right? 
Our world wants to normalize expanding the definition of marriage beyond one man and one woman. Our world wants to normalize even the idea that marriage really isn't even that important. Like it's just, it's just a, it's a thing you can do if you want to do it. Put it off till later. Establish your career first. Make sure that you have money in the bank. Like travel, do all those things while you're young first. If you find someone you like, just act like you're married to them. Like it, marriage is just a piece of paper. It doesn't really matter. Just act like you're married to them with no real commitment. And our world wants to take the gift of children and say they're obstacles. Now, they don't say that, but they sure act like it because they seem to be in their way at every move, right? They actually treat them as obstacles in their way. And the world wants to take God's normal, original blessings of marriage and thriving and uh, having a wife who, who delights in the Lord, who is faithful where God has planted her and having children who are growing in wisdom around your table, this portrait, and they want to make it abnormal. Now, right here is where I kind of got stuck in my sermon prep because my tendency here or my, my, my temptation here is to now like generalize this to just talk about marriage generally, to make some applications to the room that are more general. But I think that would be untrue to what the psalmist is doing. He's actually not doing that. He's actually being really, really specific. I think the psalmist is actually um, speaking about something real specific. So to be true to what the psalmist is saying here, um, he's not being generalistic. He's saying pursuit of the Lord like leadership, the energy of the man in the home creates a particular kind of culture within your home where wives and children flourish. I think the psalmist is speaking to the men in the room. He, he's saying, hey, are, are you pursuing the Lord with fear and trembling and, 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 and delighting to walk in his ways? I'll bless you. I'll I'll water your home. Like, I'll, I'll give you blessings within your home. It's critical that you do that to see a wife flourish and children multiply around your table. I'm primarily provoked and burdened for the men of our church uh, as it relates to this issue right here. And I think this is like the, like the battleground that's happening in our, in our church. And I wanna be careful here because I don't think it's enough for us to just put a stake in the ground and say, this matters, we're not moving on this. Because like you can totally walk in the ways of the Lord without fearing him. So I don't want us to go down that road, but I do think that there's something about the fear of God in the men of our church that actually turns the dial on this. I want men, I want your homes to be well-watered gardens. Well-watered gardens, a flourishing garden where our wives are growing like beautiful vines and our children are maturing and growing like Christ. Do you want a Proverbs 31 kind of woman? Like this, this woman who knows who she is, knows her God and her husband is standing by his side. He's, he's setting the pace for her. He's delighting in her and she is flourishing then why is it that so many men are not building their home and are bored at home? Like, do you find yourself bored at home, men? Like, I, I'm, I'm not on a pedestal here. I've been there, right? Like, how come we find ourselves bored at home? And we saw during the pandemic, like being home from work, you got lonely, you got bored, you got cabin fever, you didn't have anything to do. Home is time off. Or you clock out of work after a long day and you never clock in at home. Like you drive home exhausted and you never check in, you never clock in to what's going on in your home. And home for you is a place where you just, like you just crash at the end of your work week. It's a place where you put your feet up. It's a place where you, you've done your work and now you're done. And men, married men and single men in the room, how much time do you have on your hands? Like I did the math, you know, a full work week and sleep after working and sleep, you still have 60 to 70 hours of your week. What are you doing with that time? Have you taken stock of the time that you spend in front of the TV or for most of us, YouTube or video games or your hobbies? I ride my mountain bike. I've just gotten into mountain biking four years ago. I love it. Um, like I think a hobby is a really, really good thing. 
but man, I'm, I find struggle to fit it into my work week. I have to get up and ride my bike before anybody in my family wakes up just to squeeze it in. How are you managing your time? How much wasted energy are you giving to things that don't matter? How much leftover energy do you have before you hit the bed at night? You should not be hitting your bed with leftover energy. You have a lot of work to do. God has made us. God has made men to hit their beds tired. Here we have a picture of a garden at home to tend. Gardens take hard work. They take tending. They take sacrifice. Susan Perry knows about this. She has an amazing garden. They take an unbelievable amount of work. In Ephesians 5.25, it says that men are called to be like Christ. And then the picture he gives them is of Christ dying for us, giving ourselves up, emptying out his life. Are we emptying out our lives for our wives? Are we emptying out our lives for them? God has intended for men to carry the burden and weight and responsibility of loading, uh, like, of, of leading and creating a, a sphere and a culture in our home that fears the Lord, that goes after the Lord, of creating this garden within our homes. And yes, God has called men to provide financially for their family, but we see here that he also intends for men to shoulder up to the burden of what's going on at home. He, he's called you to actually experience the weight of what's happening within your home. Creating a garden where your wives and children are watered and nourished and grow into maturity so that they can love Jesus. We need to merge the idea of our family with the concept of our home. The home is not simply a place where you get to crash at the end of a long work week and recharge for the real work out there. If you're not gassed when you get home, you certainly shouldn't be before you hit the bed. Like, you should be before you hit the bed, I mean. Hey, and I know what that feels like. Like, I know when you get home tired, I know you want to check out. Uh, my problem is that I hate to drive, and so I only live a couple blocks from here, which I love. My problem is, is my commute is too short. So I go from work to home too fast, like I'm home in like two minutes, which is kind of bad because if I'm not careful, I walk in with everything from work, which means I walk in just like feeling like there's bricks on my back. And I have to like sit in my truck before I go into my house and go, it's time to clock in. Okay, it's game time. Here we go. Right? Like I have to like physically, mentally check in and clock in because I need to go into the house and check on my wife. And man, if God just made my requirement to just like help my wife with dinner or like knock out a few chores, I'd be golden. That'd be easy. But the burden here is to actually water my wife. So I've got to like check in with her heart. And I've got three little girls that I'm like checking with them. It's like, oh, Wait, wait, what's going on? And you're feeling anxious about that. Like, we need a wife in here. We need a woman to help navigate what's going on in their heart. I can barely navigate the heart of my wife. I've got three other girls. But I walk in, and I've got to check in with the heart of my wife. Hey, how was your day today? Like, how are you doing? How can I help you right now? And I check in with her. And then I've got to go check in with my kids, which, depending on the ages of your kids, it means you're wrestling with them on the ground. It means you're playing with them. It means you're asking them how their day was. What was hard about your day today? It's you're finishing homework with them. You're, there's a lot to do. And then you have dinner and then you're helping clean up that. And then it's time for bedtime routine. And at our house, it means uh, like a 15 minute devotional in our entryway. And so our kids run off, get their jammies on, come back down. And we're either reading a short part of scripture, Jesus Storybook Bible, or right now we're reading through the Pilgrim's Progress, that little Pilgrim's Progress book. And um, then I'll ask a couple of questions. They'll answer them. We'll say a simple prayer. And then we head them off to bed and we'll pray over them in their beds. And I'm exhausted by this point, like I'm dead. But this is the only time I get with my wife. So I check in with her and we have a conversation. Actually, we used to do that and it never went well. We do that now in the morning. But do, you know, you do you, you do evening or morning, whether you're a night owl or uh, whether you get up early. But, but man, like, how do you squeeze anything else in? Like, you don't have much time. You don't have much to, like, to, to, to fit in there. 
and I want to recharge my way, right? Like, woman, get off my back. You don't know what my day was like. Or you go home and you're like, is this all you've done all day? Man, I've just, I've knocked out my to-do list. Or kids, golly, give me a, give me dang 15 minutes. Like, settle down, be quiet. And I, and I, and I do that. I go, be quiet, be quiet. Give me 15 minutes. And you want to say all these different things. And when I pull up to my house, I have to tell myself to clock in. And it's hard. Of course it's hard. Of course this is hard. It's meant to be. God actually intends this to be hard and weighty, purposefully. God intends for this burden to be on your shoulders and intends it to be hard. Now, here's the thing. I don't think it's enough for us to just say these blessings matter. Put the stake down, right? I said that. Like, it's not enough to just say that this matters to our church. Like, we actually have to I think the point here is not to fight in like the culture wars or something like that because it's possible for us to embrace the ways of the Lord without the fear of the Lord. So this is intended to be a heavy weight on our back. It's meant to be hard. Why? So that you will faithfully lead your family in what it looks like to rest in Christ. Men, are you shouldering up to this responsibility, these opportunities you have to demonstrate the love of Christ in your home. Let the fear of the Lord drive you there. Like his glory, his majesty, his blessings, his, um, his grace to be in all of him. So fear God and find your rest in him alone right? Emptying yourself out for your home and be renewed in Christ alone. YouTube is not going to renew your soul. Not even a vacation is going to renew. How many of us come back from vacations exhausted? Like I love vacations. I love going scuba diving. I love going to the mountains. I love doing all those things, but I come back tired, right? Christ will give you rest for your souls. Rely on him and invite your family into that. You can't belly up to this alone, you're going to need that commute time. Like maybe drive around the block a few laps, right? You're gonna need the commute time to pray to Jesus, to fill you afresh with his spirit, to actually give you the, the fruits of the spirit so that you can minister and lead your family well. You're going to need a commute time to say, ask God for strength and help so you can walk in his ways when you're leading at home. And the fear of the Lord is expressed in walking out his ways. Like, don't, don't miss that. Don't forget that. Not going your own way. It's not expressed in, 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 in you getting your time. It's, it's, it's expressed in how you show up at home. What you do when you show up at home shows who you are. Men who fear and worship God by emptying out themselves and laying their lives down and sacrifice, they do what shows, like they, we, we do what shows who we are and our priorities in life show we love and fear God. Now, <clears throat> some of us in the room hear that and we go, I wanna be that kind of man. Like I want that kind of family. I want that kind of wife that's flourishing. I want children like that. I wanna pursue that, but I don't know how. Like we weren't shown, like many of us weren't shown that, right? We don't have a good picture of that. Hey, today, this afternoon, read Psalm 1. Like th this is a beautiful portrait of what it looks like to, to, to be instructed on how you pursue this. And stating these truths in the Psalm in a positive way sounds like seeking the counsel of the godly. Surround yourself with other godly men. Stand in the path of righteousness. Be bold and courageous to stand where God's called you to stand. To sit in the seat of the wise Read Proverbs. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Read the Proverbs. Read the Proverbs. Delight in the word of God and meditate on his scripture day and night. Read his word and ask for a new, a fresh infilling of the spirit to give you strength to walk this out. Hey, and if, uh, and if you're asking for help here, we want to do all of those things instructed to us in Psalm 1 together as men in our church. This is why this year we are creating some context for men to get together to both hear what does the word of God actually call men toward? We're going to be spending this year walking through some of uh, the Genesis account and what a man is called toward. Those are going to happen at our quarterly men's breakfasts. We would love for all of you to be there. 
all men are invited to these quarterly men breakfasts where we're going to uh, instruct what does God say toward men. And then we're also going to be gathering monthly for men's prayer where we are going to be practicing pursuing the Lord together as brothers as we long to see men build this house their home, and build culture. We want actually uh, the presence of God, the fear of the Lord to spill out in all the contacts and places where God has called us. Uh, You can find out more information on those by joining our church center group called Builders. So if you go to the groups page on church center, uh, join our Builders group and you can have that information on how to be a part of those. All right. Hey, would you stand with me as we move toward communion? And those serving communion can go ahead and come on forward. Hey, what the psalmist is saying is that all of God's people get little tastes of what's coming. Treasure the hors d'oeuvres. Treasure them. Like you don't, don't presume upon them. You don't know how long you have them. You don't know how they're going to come to you. Don't take them for granted for a moment because they are just little hors d'oeuvres for the eternal blessing that's to come. And in all the failures and all the griefs and all the sorrows that we experience in this life, let's remember what Isaiah says. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. And our only remedy from the disaster, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And Ron said this earlier, he has laid the iniquity on Jesus so that we could be made whiter than snow, cleaned from the inside out. And communion, we take communion every single week because communion points us back to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to make us clean, to make us white as snow. But communion also is a promise. It points us forward to remind us that we will taste the feast with Jesus again. This is a reminder that Because of Jesus, we will feast with him in eternity. And if that's your hope this morning, if if you fear the Lord and walk in his ways, we invite you to come and take communion. Uh, Rejoice and be happy. The Lord dispenses blessings to you. Like he, his face shines upon you. He's happy with you. He wants to bless you. And so would you come and take communion with that kind of joy in our hearts that he Like we didn't deserve it. We were rebels. We had sinful fear and yet he came and called us by name and and sacrificed so that we could be close to him again so that we don't have to fear again. Hey, if that's your hope, come and take communion. The way we take communion is we tear a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The glassware is juice. The stoneware is uh, wine. And we have an allergy option over here. Um, If that's not your hope this morning, then we invite you to just stay in your seat. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. We're so glad that you're participating in our worship service, but we'd ask for you to just stay in your seat. It won't be awkward or anything. You don't, there's no reason to go through uh, a religious ritual if that's not the belief in your heart. So let me pray for us and we'll come and take communion. Father God, we, we love you. We love you not because of the blessings you give us, but because of your grace in Jesus and your blessings are just frosting on the cake. We love you. Would you, would you like um, make us happy in you right now as we take communion? In your name, amen.